We've been in a series called, How Can I Be Sure? It's a series through the book of First John. And First John is quite clear in what it says, and yet we have to make sure we're balancing the truth of God's Word in our lives. And every time it speaks on one topic, we compare it with the rest of Scripture. And hopefully we're taking a balanced look at what Scripture tells us. But one thing we know for sure is that you can be sure. We want you to be sure of your relationship with Christ. We want you to be secure and sure of what your future holds. Thinking about that, knowing your experience with God is real has got to be the most important issue in life. It's got to be more important than where you go to college, than what job you get, how much money you make, how many friends you have, and how happy you are. Having that surety is more important than any of those things. Are you sure of your relationship with God this morning? Imagine that you're in a corner office on the top of a high-rise building considering a multi-million dollar deal which could make or break your career. Think about that. But then put yourself in the context that it's 8 a.m. on September 11th, 2001. Your office is in the World Trade Center. In light of about what is to happen, where should you put what's most important in your life in line? I pray this morning that you're putting things into context as we struggle with our reality right now and you're struggling with what's happening in your life. Put into context what's most important. And it has to be your surety. Week one, we talked about God wants you to be sure. He loves you and he welcomes you. God wants you to know for sure. He doesn't want you to be fearful or wondering or skeptical about your future. Week two, we talked about how your experience with God gives you surety. And I pray that you understand that. We tried to balance last week understanding that God should be guiding, leading, and directing in your life. You should have a relationship with him where he is uh, giving you instructions on a daily basis. But we want you to know that that comes through his word. And we do want you to then test and see if the message is from God, if you're hearing something or, or feel like you're being prompted for something. I don't want anybody to think that I'm not saying that people can be led by God. Of course you're led by God. I left my home to come over to this side of the state to be your pastor because I felt led by God. I am not saying that people aren't led by God. What I'm saying is we test what we think God is saying. How do we test it? It has to agree with what Scripture teaches. And then you go to mentors, spiritual mentors in your life. And if they're confirming it. Last week I gave an illustration about Beth Moore. Some people think I hate Beth Moore. I don't. I hope and pray you don't think that. I'm a big defender that we don't just write people off if we disagree with one thing or two things they say. I defend Beth Moore and I defend uh, Priscilla, I defend uh, Rick Warren. I, I, I will defend my brothers and sisters in Christ even if we don't agree on everything. But I will say this, it's important that we check scripture to see if what they're saying is accurate. Test and see. I had a young girl when I was a youth pastor. She came to me and said uh, she had visited another church. And while she was there, a woman in the church came up to her and said she had a word from God for her. She said, young girl, I, I see you on a stage singing in front of thousands of people. God is telling me that you're going to be a Christian singing superstar. She told me that that was her experience and she was starting to plan to, to become this Christian musical singing star. Here's the problem. God bless her heart. She couldn't sing. She wasn't any good at it. There was no way 
that she was getting a word from the Lord from somebody else who got a word from the Lord. And it's those kind of things that I worry about. Understand that David Koresh thought he heard from the Lord that he was the Messiah. Understand that there are cults everywhere built on the fact that God speaks to one person and we just must believe that. What I'm trying to teach is you must be led by God. You must be as a Christian hearing from God on a daily basis. But test those thoughts. Test them through scripture. Test them through godly leaders. I hope that's clearer today. This is week three. And today's big idea, go ahead and ask me. I'm looking out at Barry Toom's pictures right over there. And on his picture is a word bubble that says, what's the big idea? Barry's great at saying that out loud for us when he's here. Everybody should be asking right now, what's the big idea for today, pastor? And here's the big idea for today. Three attitudes towards sin that give you surety. Today we're going to talk about there's three attitudes you and I need to have in our lives that gives us surety that we truly are in a relationship with God that's unique and genuine. We're going to be looking at 1 John 1, 5, all the way through chapter 2 and verse 2. Get your text open and ready to read that throughout our passage today. And our key verse, our key verse is, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's 1 John 2 and verse 1. This morning, as we look through this text, I am praying that you will follow along and ask yourself, what is my attitude toward sin? You can be sure you're a child of God if you have these attitudes in your life, that this is how God is moving and working in you. Let's jump right into it, 1 John. And we're going to start this passage with 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Let me read that, and then we'll make some points on it, and then we'll move on. This is the message we have heard from him, and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. What is John saying here? Well, John doesn't mince words. He's the son of thunder. So he'll come in and tell you, you're a liar if you don't walk in the light. If you claim to be in the light and walk in darkness, you're lying. The truth is not in you. So We take a look at this and try to understand what are we being taught. Number one, I must live in a position of surrender. Oh, friends, I want you to know that the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, you're surrendering your willful, defiant, and sin-pursuing life. That's what John is getting at here. He makes it very clear there's darkness and there's light. And you want to be walking in light, not in darkness, And John is trying to teach us that walking in darkness is that willful, defiant, sin-pursuit lifestyle. So let's look at some other scriptures and put it in context this morning. 2 Peter 2, 22. A lot of twos there. 2 Peter 2, 22 gives us life according to a dog and a pig. This is kind of a gross passage, but it says, Of them, the Proverbs are true. Of who? If you go back and look at that context, people that claim to be followers but aren't. People that are living in sin, that should be living in light. Of them, the proverb is true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to wallow in the mud. I won't spend much time on that first one. I think you get the point. If you have a dog and he's ever thrown up somewhere, you got to keep him from going back to it. He's enamored with it. He wants to go back to it and, and try it again. That's gross. 
The other context here is of a pig. You can take a pig and wash it up in a bath and clean it up, but that pig is going to head back to the mud the first chance it gets. Life according to a dog and a pig, heading to sin, heading to wallow in the mud. I understand that we're all sinners and we still live in the flesh and we struggle with our sinfulness, but that's the point. Are you struggling with it? Or is it a way of life that you just keep returning to it without any thought? We struggle with sin because we are believers and that is darkness and we want to be in the light. And so John makes it very clear. We must live in a position of surrendering our lives. The second verse I'd like to point out is Psalm 19 and verse 8. And it's life according to David. David says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. David is saying, I love the Lord's leadership in my life. I love the Lord's guidance and direction. I submit to that willingly. David said it's beautiful. It's radiant. It's life-giving. Is that your attitude of surrender As John's talking about sin, he's making the point. If you call yourself a believer, then we're learning to walk in the light and we're surrendering our ways of darkness. That willful, defiant choice of sin. Jesus himself gives us some words in Luke 9, 23. Life according to Jesus, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What is surrender? Surrender means we are struggling and doing battle against our willful side. We are struggling and doing battle against our defiant side. We're struggling and doing battle against running after sin, returning to the mud like a pig. We struggle with that. The opposite would be true. We don't struggle if we enjoy wallowing in it and enjoy returning to it and pursue it. It's so hard to balance this. I'm not telling you that you can be perfect because if I said you would not sin, then we're guilty of the next point. The next point John makes is that everyone is in sin. If we claim to be sin, we're a liar. Let's go to that point. Oh, before we do that, three ways real quickly. We're talking about darkness and light. And I want to make sure you understand uh, what Scripture and John is talking about is not the world who doesn't know Christ. This is specifically to people that claim to be believers, So three ways that church people are still in darkness. I put church people in quotes because there's a lot of church people who claim to be in the light, but they're walking around in darkness. First thing is believing without repenting. Believing without repenting. That's some kind of a a pursuit of fire insurance. I just want to make sure I go to heaven and I don't go to hell. Purchasing my fire insurance, and then living like hell the rest of my life. That's not what Jesus called us to do. That's how church people can still be living in darkness, believing without repenting. The second thing is willfully embracing sin, not struggling with it, not surrendering ourselves and learning to walk in self-control, the Bible teaches, that willfulness. And then thirdly, praying a sinner's prayer without an accompanying submission, Again, I point you to that billboard I saw on M127 heading up north. Somebody put a sign up that says, Jesus, come into my heart. And I don't know what they were thinking. I'm sure they had good thoughts. But every truck driver, every person driving by that sees that sign and just reads those words, I hope you're not assuming they're saved because they said it. Kind of like, ha-ha, God, now they're saved because they said the words. No, 
No, it's not just about saying a prayer. It's not just about reading a billboard. There has to be more. There has to be belief. It has to deal with volition. So I'm telling you this morning that praying a sinner's prayer without the accompanying submission is empty and hollow. I'm not just saying it out of my own words. Jesus himself in Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? There has to be something that deals with your volition and your will. So John is teaching us in this first point that true believers, you can have surety if you're surrendering to the light and not wallowing in the darkness as a way of life, as a habitual way of living. Let's move on to the second point. The second point is found in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Let me read that context. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So John is not teaching in the first point that we become sinless as believers. We're talking about a habitual choice, a way of living in light or in darkness. We wrestle and struggle with our flesh like Paul talks about. We, we conquer our, our, our willfulness. We put under submission the authority of Christ our lives. Because in the second point, we're, we're learning that I must be deeply aware of my sinfulness. Oh, we're not perfect. Just because we've come to Christ and we believe in him and ask him to forgive us of our sins doesn't mean we're then perfect. And John is dealing with an attitude within the church that he, he has people that believe they aren't sinful. Everybody else are the sinful ones. It was easy for everybody to look out and say, these are the sinners, I'm pretty good. And so John is making the point, and we need to understand one of the ways that we can be sure is be deeply aware of our sinfulness. We're going to show you a video in just a second. I was reminded of Febreze commercials in the past that dealt with nose blindness. You remember these commercials? Let's run one of them about nose blindness. Kathy's gotten used to the smell of lingering garbage in her kitchen. Yep, she's gone nose blind. She thinks it smells fine, but her guests smelled this. Febreze Air Effects Heavy Duty has up to two times the odor-eliminating power to remove odors you've gone nose-blind to. Use Febreze Air Effects till it's fresh and try Febreze Small Spaces to continuously eliminate up to two times the odors for 30 days. Febreze Small Spaces and Air Effects. Two more ways to breathe happy. Breathe happy. Febreze did a good job on that commercial pointing out nose blindness. John is pointing out here in scripture that people have nose blindness when it comes to sin. They don't sense their own sinfulness. They think everything is fine and pure and perfect and yet we're all struggling with sin. What about you? Are you aware of your sinfulness? One of the ways we know that we're in him is that the spirit will speak to you and illuminate and will point out your sinfulness. If you're wondering, as we head into communion today, we need to test ourselves, examine ourselves. How do I do that? Let me tell you. Go to God and ask him to do a sin check in your heart. If you will pray before we go to communion today, God, would you reveal sin in my life? He will point it out. He will. He does a great 
search. He's better than a search bar in Google. He, he does a search in your heart and your life, and he will reveal. That's what the Holy Spirit does. One of the ways you can know that you're in him is if your sinfulness is coming out in your own mind. It's about the brighter God's light, the more is revealed. The brighter God's light is in your life, the more sinfulness will be revealed. I believe that the longer you walk with Christ and grow in a relationship with him, the more your sinfulness in your own eyes will be seen. Or as Febreze would say, you'll sniff it out. It'll smell. So as you grow, it's, it's not that sin departs from your life. The more it'll be pointed out because the Holy Spirit will reveal your sinfulness. And I pray you're not thinking of, of the gambling and drug addiction and, and, and violence. <laughs> uh, we, we skip over the sins that we deal with daily. Honesty, lust, anger, jealousy. I mean, we skip over the things that bother God. So let God reveal what's going on in your life and what the sinfulness is that you have. And then, religious B.O. never takes a bath, but only changes clothes. I think John is pointing out to believers, don't look at the sin of the world that doesn't know God. Look inside the church and see how stinky it is to God that his own people aren't walking in obedience and in light. As a youth pastor years ago, when the first Axe spray, remember Axe body spray for teens came out? Oh my goodness. The guys in our youth ministry, that's, they thought it was the best thing in the world. We didn't have to take a shower anymore. We just spray Axe on ourselves. Have you ever smelt a teen boy that stinks and yet covers himself with Axe spray? It's, a, it's, a, it's quite an amazing aroma that'll hit you. The, the BO with the Axe spray is kind of overwhelming. There's nothing that you can do that'll just cover over sin. It's got to be washed away. And, and I want to encourage you as believers not to get caught up in your religiosity and think that you're fine. And, and those other people, that they've got the... It's never about which sin is worse. It's always about which sin is mine. Let God do a sin search in your life. Psalm 139, David said, Oh Lord, search me and know me. Let God search your heart. Be deeply aware of your own sinfulness. How people respond. Oh, before we do that, I had another video real quick. Let's go ahead and roll that second one. There was two good videos. I didn't want to leave either one of them out. So I want to show the other Febreze commercial. Maybe this is how you're living life. It's worth of bad odors in a home. Some aerosols may just mix with them. Can Febreze really remove them? We asked real people what they thought. Take a deep breath for me. Describe the smell. It's very pleasant. Fresh, some kind of flower, maybe. Remove the blindfold. Oh, oh, yuck! I didn't smell any of that. Febreze Air Effects doesn't mix; it actually removes odors. Wow, that's incredible! Just another way Febreze helps you breathe happy. Breathe happy. <laughs> Again, you can't just cover over sin. There is no Febreze for the believer. Febreze isn't going to work. That's spiritual BO that doesn't take a bath but just changes clothes every once in a while. There's only one good way, and that's come clean and repent. Let God wash that away. And then if it returns, ask God for help for removing that sin and then not walking back to it and returning to it. We've got to be aware of our own sinfulness. How do people respond to the reality of sin? In general, some people retreat back into darkness. 
when, when we point out sinfulness, some people will say, I can't control it. I'm just going to return to my natural way. Some people are going to insist on their own goodness. Some people will say, when you talk about sin, is they're going to say, I'm not that bad. I do this or I do that. I do this good thing. And, and that outweighs anything that I do bad. Insisting on goodness does not deal with the reality of sin. And thirdly, there are those that will come into the light and repent. And I believe that's what we're talking about, the seriousness of understanding our own sinfulness today and asking God to forgive it, but then repent. To confess and repent means more than to say, I'm sorry. It means turning, changing directions, and walking in a new way of life. That's what it scripturally is meant about dealing with our sin. And then thirdly today, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Let me read that. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love that John points out how God deals with our sin. Number one, first thing today that we talked about is, is we must live in a position of surrender. The second thing we talked about is realizing our own sinfulness. And the third thing this morning is I must rest confidently in the finished work of the Savior. How can you be sure? You understand that you're a sinner. You wrestle with the flesh and you do battle so that you have self-control with God's help. And finally, we have confidence that it's been finished through Jesus. Are you confident before God because of what Jesus has done? Have you asked him to save you and submitted your life to him? Then walk confidently that it is complete. Jesus, according to this passage, is my propitiation. You ought to practice saying that out loud. Propitiation. I'm not afraid to tell you a word that sounds big. Uh, some people say we shouldn't do that. But listen, if you can go to Starbucks and offer a cafe coleche frappuccino with soy milk, and if you can do all that at Starbucks, you can learn what propitiation means. And let me just tell you this morning that propitiation, according to Scripture, means a claim against you has been satisfied. Wrath's been absorbed and goodwill replaced ill will. That's the propitiation. Jesus went to the cross and he died for sins and that sacrifice satisfied God. It's God's justice that matters. I've said this before. What matters most is someday you're going to stand before a holy God and he's going to want to know who's paying for the sin. Are you putting your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross? It has been satisfied. Propitiation means satisfied. I told the people in our church this story, but maybe you're new and haven't heard it before, but something happened in my life that just revealed this to me, and I'm so thankful for it. I was involved in an accident years ago. It was during the winter, and I was driving in my big F-150 truck, big red fancy wheels, and I was driving through a neighborhood, and, and I come to a stop sign, hit my brakes, and, and it just slid. The tires were getting a little bald, and the more I pumped the brakes, the more I just picked up steam. I was heading downhill to a stop sign on jet ice, and I realized that I was not going to stop and that's when I saw her, a teenage girl coming to the same intersection with her red sports car. 
I knew right away we were in trouble. Have you ever experienced that and things go into slow motion? It went into slow motion for me. I'm, I'm pumping the brakes. I'm realizing I'm heading downhill. I can't stop this big truck. And I realize she's coming right in front of the truck. I looked at her. Everything got slow. And I looked at her and I said, I can't stop. And she looked at me and said, ah. And I hit her. My big F-150 truck went up on top of that sports car hood and started to eat it. <laughs> And I bounced back, and I thought, oh, I'm glad that's done. But then my truck slid and went all the way down the side of her car and just destroyed it. Oh, I, me- I remember coming to a stop finally, and I, I got out, and I-, I saw her car was crumpled. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And I got out and looked at my truck, and, and I had ridden up on top of her car, and then my bumper dragged down the side. There was nothing wrong with my truck. My bumper edge was scratched. That's all but her car was totaled. I walked over to her and I'm, I said, oh goodness. And then I realized, oh no, I knew her. Her and her father came to our church. Oh, it's awful when the pastor crashes into somebody from their own church. She's crying. She'd just gotten this new car from her dad. And she's like, my dad's gonna kill me. And I'm like, oh no, no, this was my fault. I remember I asked her to call her dad and she dialed up her dad on her cell phone and I grabbed the phone and, and her dad answered, hi, sweetie, how you doing? I'm like, no, no, this isn't sweetie, this is Pastor Don. He's like, Pastor Don? I said, yeah, listen, I just ran into your daughter. He goes, oh, where? I'm like, no, I ran into your daughter. I rolled over her, her car, she's fine, but the car's totaled and it was all my fault. I was so apologetic. As that scene kind of wrapped up, I remember an officer came. There was a liaison officer there at the school, and he came to the scene. I'd worked with him on many things. He knew I was a pastor in the local area. And I remember he, he had taken the report, and then he's pacing in front of his car after the, the tow truck came and took that away, and we were all kind of cleaned up, ready to go. He's pacing, talking to himself. Officer Matt was just, he was kind of upset, and I'm like, what's wrong? And he says, I, I have to give you a ticket. I'm like, I understand. I hit this girl. And he's like, no, I don't want to give you a ticket. They're, they're going to laugh at me when I bring this in. I gave Pastor Jackson a ticket. I can't do it. I'm like, listen, I hit this girl. You need to, you got to do something. And I can't believe I'm arguing with an officer and telling him to write me the ticket. He finally is. He's writing the ticket out. I remember him saying, listen, you fight this. You need to go to court and fight this ticket. Because it was slickery and it, you couldn't stop. And he finally gives me the ticket. I take it and I remember looking at the ticket and saying I had some options and I wrote a letter to the court and just saying, listen, it was slippery and the officer told me that I should fight this and they sent me back a court date saying you can't do it by mail, you got to come to court, here's your, I don't want to go to court. I remember thinking, I don't want to go to court. I knew I was guilty, I knew I was in the wrong. I went to court, I remember getting to the the court that day, and I was the only one in the waiting room, a little room with about 10 plastic chairs. I remember going and sitting down in the plastic chairs, and uh, a lady came out, and she said, are you Don Jackson? I said, yes. She goes, we'll be with you in just a moment, and she went back into the court, and then I could hear the door was open. I could hear what was happening, and there was a court case going on, and a lady was sitting there. She's yelling at the judge. The judge is saying, ma'am, you're, you're responsible for your vehicle. She had been on the same road on the same day and had an accident, and she was trying to get out of her ticket, and she kept telling the judge, it wasn't my fault. And he said, ma'am, were you behind the wheel? Yes, but it, the road was slippery. And he said, ma'am, you were in charge of your vehicle. She said, yeah, but it can't be my fault. I'm not going to pay for this ticket. He said, ma'am, I'm telling you, you got a $100 fine and you got to pay it. She said, I won't pay this fine. And she gets up and storms out the court right past me. And I thought, I'm dead. I don't even know why I'm here. I don't want to do this. 
then the judge says, Don Jackson. I said, yes. He goes, come in here. And I walked into the court ready to take my lumps. I remember the judge looked at me and he said, Don, we just got a phone call not too long ago from Officer Matt. And he said he can't be here today. He's not going to arrive for the case. And he's writing on the ticket. And then the judge says, here you go, Don. This case is dismissed. And I walked up and I, I went and got the ticket from him and I was confused. I said, sir, I, I don't understand. I, I hit a girl. Uh, I totaled her car. And the judge says, well, Don, you need to understand that when Officer Matt called to tell us he wasn't coming, that ends the case. There's nobody here that was there to witness this. There's nobody that can tell us what had happened. It's dismissed. I remember turning to leave when it hit me. I turned around and I looked at the judge and I said, sir, I'm sorry to bother you, but there is somebody here that was there that day. I was driving my truck down the road and I was going too fast and I couldn't stop. And I hit this girl's car. It was my fault. The judge looked at me and he said, Don, you're really bad at this. I'm telling you, your case has been dismissed. I took that ticket and I walked to my car and I felt this overwhelming feeling that it wasn't just. It was my fault. I wasn't wrong. How could it just be dismissed? And that's what I want to let you know today about the difference between that story and what Jesus has done for us. You see, Jesus paid the penalty that was due us. And when Jesus paid that, he became our propitiation. But John says he is also our advocate. I've always thought about that as Jesus then goes to court for us and he tries to tell Jesus, he tries to tell the Father to be merciful on me. He, 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 as if he goes into court with a, the God as the judge and he says, God, don't punish Don. He's not so bad. He tries really hard. He's working on it. And that's not at all what happens. I've come to realize that when John teaches us we have a, an advocate, Jesus doesn't go to God and beg for mercy. He goes to God and he asks for justice. You see, Jesus says, Father, I paid the full price for Don's sin. I took the penalty that was due him so that he could have the credit that is due me. It's only right that he should not be held accountable for that sin. When Jesus goes and advocates for us to the Father, he's not begging him to be kind to us. He's not begging him to be merciful to us. He's telling God the just thing to do is to dismiss this case. It has been paid in full. My payment is sufficient. He cannot demand two penalties for the same sin because our God is just and right. Oh, yes, we are recipients of his grace and his mercy and his love. But you need to understand what Jesus did was the propitiation and the advocation to tell, to, to tell God it's been covered. He asked me to forgive his sin and come into his life as a Savior and his Lord. I pray today that you understand, you can have surety that you're a child of God and how you deal with sin. Are you wrestling in the light so that you don't return to the darkness? Are you confident of your sinfulness? Like the day I told the judge, I was there, I know I'm guilty. Are you aware of your own sinfulness? And thirdly, are you standing confidently in the finished work of our Savior? You have an advocate. 
appealing for justice. As I think of what John has said in this passage today, I'm reminded of this, that I'd want you to put this out there. Go ahead and type it out on the social media. I'm simultaneously worse than I ever imagined, and I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dreamed. That's the walk of a true believer. I am simultaneously worse than I ever imagined and more loved and accepted than I ever dreamed. God loves us. There's a song that we want to close with. I've asked Christopher to come and and lead you through. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. Every once in a while a song comes out and it just clearly states theology. I want to read it for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. How are you dealing with sin today? What's your attitude about sin and sinfulness? I pray this morning you're trusting in Christ's forgiveness and you're walking in submission and obedience.